Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Matters. My name is Graham Brown, joined by our esteemed guest today, Simon Kemp. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Very nice to be in the studio with you for the first time. It is. Face to face. Just back from your travels as well. Yep, absolutely. Just got back from Canada, so I'm all confused. I don't know what time of day it is, what day of the week it is even. <laughs> Here we are in Singapore. Yep. And we're going to go international, talk a little bit about Asia mm-hmm. and Asia's impact on the world and also why Asia matters in the context of sport and entertainment and the media world today. Yep. Starting with the World Cup. We are, which is quite ironic. I am probably the world's least knowledgeable when it comes yeah. to soccer. But you stunned me with a stat. So on our other show that we do, Digital Lives Asia, we yeah. usually turn stats into stories. That's right. And you were overwhelming me with statistics. I was, show. yeah, yeah. So there's a stat which comes from FIFA and the uh, Football Federation's I mean, they they report the number of ticket sales for each country to the World Cup. And interestingly, China sold more tickets um, to its citizens than England sold to its citizens. Interestingly, 37,000 tickets bought in China, 31,000 bought in England. And China doesn't even have a team in the World Cup. How about that? Correct. And it's not really the sort of thing you would expect. So we were talking about stereotypes. Stereotypes are inevitably provocative and can be inappropriate. But you don't normally expect... Chinese people to be the world's biggest fans of soccer, especially yeah. compared to somewhere like England, which is theoretically the home of yeah, it's football. The home. It's the, the home. home of football. As a Scotsman, I'm going to obviously have a <laughs> completely different perspective on that. But you know, it was it was really amazing. Now, obviously, China massively bigger population than the UK, but mm. at the same time, the fact that Chinese people bought more tickets to the World Cup when their team isn't even playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is not staggering. even cheap. I mean, you're not sort of talking about going to a football game. You're talking no. about going to another country. I mean. I know people say, well, China's next door to Russia, but, you know, going from Moscow to Beijing, I don't know how far that is, but that's like going across two or three time zones, At isn't it? At least. I think it's a good sort of six different time zones. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy how far, if you look at Russia on the map, mm. it's the world's biggest sort of expanse, if you like. Yeah, I mean, and then you've got the, sort of the cultural challenge of going from China to Russia. It's not like an easy thing. You could quite easily sit in your front room and watch football if that's yeah. what you wanted to do. Right, so right. we're not talking like a an accidental, oh, I might go out and watch the match tonight. You, know, right, like right. you thought about that carefully. So, yeah, it's... It must be, I mean, it must be like $5,000 to buy tickets, to buy hotels, because hotels are going to be, you know, two or three times the price. Russia's not cheap. No. And you've got the travel. Mm-hmm. And then so, all the stuff that goes around it, like the celebrating. Right, right. You, know, you, don't, yeah. you don't go to a football match and just sort of sit down and quietly right. watch it and then go home. Do you? I mean, it's a, it's a right. big thing. You've sort of got the drink and the food and the partying and whatever else. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because culturally it shows, um, I think, go back to that stereotype thing, when you think about the world's view of what Chinese people do mm. and how they spend their spare time and all of that, I don't think it would involve top of the list of, they like to sit down and watch soccer matches in stadia around the world and travel and see all these different kinds of teams. And I think that that bit to me is really, really interesting. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is whether or not there was an element of those 37,000 that came from the brands that have been massively visible uh, in sponsoring yeah, the yeah, World yeah. Cup this year. So if you look at the number of Chinese brands on the hoardings around the the stadium and stuff like that it's it's fascinating the amount of money that chinese brands have been dropping into mm. soccer mm. but regardless of whether that's the, the fact that these 
sort of Chinese citizens have realized that that is a really great way to take their brands out to the world and therefore they want to be part of that overall experience as well. You could quite easily sponsor it and not go, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, there is clearly something here that there's an interesting blending of different East meets West, yeah. sort of terrible cliches that we're gonna, inevitably going to fall into as part of this conversation. But I think that's really interesting is that even four years ago, I don't think you would have seen that happening. And yet mm. with that sudden growth in, I suppose, Chinese use. So, yeah, this, yeah. so for the benefit of listeners, Graham is now passing me stats. 100,000 Chinese football fans to buy 25 US million dollars worth of hospitality packages yeah. at the 2018 World Cup. That's I mean, just 100,000, but yeah, it's still a big uh, number. 25 million. So how much is that each? That must be, what, 25 grand? I can't do the maths on that, mate. 25 grand, isn't it? Oof, yeah. I was almost in dropping this yeah. there. But $25 million worth in the grand scheme of the World Cup is not a huge it's amount. It's tiny, isn't right? it? There's billions yeah. of dollars that ends up going floating around this. But the fact that China's now getting involved in that is a really interesting development. So I think you know, we're not going to spend the whole of this show talking about the World Cup no, and Chinese no, no, football no. fans. No. But I think what, what it provoked when you and I were talking about this just before the show is this interesting thing that the perceptions that the world has of what cultural things Chinese people are interested in mm. I think are probably largely inaccurate right, right. we don't expect yeah, yeah, them to yeah. love football for example but you then started talking about this burgeoning well it's actually quite well established already so burgeoning is probably the wrong word but this sort of the underbelly mm. music scene in a city like Beijing for example so rather than me steal your story yeah I mean this was sort of made aware to me by Andrea Miles who came on Asia Tech podcast few weeks back and she was talking about the Beijing punk scene now I didn't even know there was a Beijing <laughs> punk scene apparently there is and it, yeah. as you say it's a burgeoning scene it's, it's well established and mm. it's not just a new thing interestingly you know you you talk about stereotypes a you don't sort of think about you know China in the context of music generally on you know like and especially not sort of that type of music yeah, I mean, punk, punk, is, punk is rebellious exactly. and it's like flipping a finger at authority and you thought well in china over all places you can imagine oh yeah maybe like in one of those really remote tier two cities but beijing mm. so i'm really fascinated by that the fact a it exists and b that they allow it to exist yeah and you know when i said it's not quite burgeoning so i was in beijing eight nine years ago and it was already right. a thing so there's this region a region sort of like a district in the city where a lot of these underground clubs you exist i didn't get to go to one of the events sadly um Punk's not really quite my thing. I no. did go to a techno night when I was there, which was fascinating because I've gone to techno nights all around the world. Mm -hmm. We'll come on to that in just a minute. But I think just that, that idea that you've got this scene in Beijing, which, you know, eight, nine years, the authorities are aware of this. Mm -hmm. The authorities are aware of everything in China, as you would expect. And therefore, if they really didn't approve of it, it would have been closed down by now. So right. there is obviously a degree of tolerance and momentum behind that, which, again, I think if you look at the expectations of the outside world, when they look at Chinese culture and whatever else, that may not be what they're expecting. But mm. you look at that from a business perspective, the we call it punk because it's that kind of... <laughs> Fancy there's that kind of noise, it sounds incredibly judgmental. I don't mean it judgmentally, but you know, punk is defined by a certain kind of sound. The Chinese version of punk, of what I've heard of it, you can understand why it's called punk, but it's quite different to what you would expect from something like the Sex Pistols, for example. Right, <laughs> so I'm just handing, I'm handing Simon a, a picture, some pictures from the Beijing punk scenes. And I mean, you're talking about punk that, you know, there was a sort of a later generation of punk like Green Day and Blink. Yeah. 
whatever, 182 or whatever, and which was sort of like second generation, generation punk, which was a bit more commercial, wasn't it? But before yeah. that, there was The Clash and The Pistols yeah. and The Ramones, which were pretty damn hardcore. That was yeah. all about, let's just destroy. Well, Clash, Clash are a bit more intelligent. I'm a, I'm a big Clash fan, so... You know, I grew up with the class, and they were always a bit more sort of intelligent and they were politically aware. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Strummer was very much a, uh, not an ideologue, but he was very much speaking for a generation, but not just in a punk way, which was, you know, let's burn at the world. It was all about, you know, let's make a better system. Mm. So when you think about that in the context of Beijing, I always thought, well, if that was going to happen, maybe it's sort of like in the Japanese way where they take the imagery but none of the ideology mm. you know you, you've spent time in japan you know how it is like yeah. when you see the rockers you know the, the rockers dressed up in the leather and stuff like that they, they very much look like hillbillies and rockers but you know they're not out there's there with the some, chains and smashing yeah, up stuff. You speak to them and they're incredibly polite yeah. as all Japanese people are and they use their honorifics and it's, you know, they, they look after their mothers. It's kind of... <laughs> I think this is what's really interesting is that in a lot of contexts around Asia and I think mm. it's important to stress that Asia is not one place. We talk about this a lot on all of our shows but I'm going to sort of make that generalisation. Around Asia, a lot of the time, the cultural appropriation and I mean that in a positive way you know they'll mm. take influences from around the world and they make them their own so if you look at the the punk or the rock scene in a country like Indonesia for example again it's recognizable as that kind of sound and yet they've added their own sort of version of stuff to it <laughs> showing me more of these photos yeah the, guy, the, the oxblood dot martins and the... are we able to put links to these as part of the show yeah we have I think, to yeah I think you, you want to be seeing Frank Yu it was the guy that you just showed me Is before. That Frank that was his, I think that was his name. I right. that Frank used the person that shared the picture. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's just really interesting how you see how that kind of stuff evolves. Yeah. And I think music is one of those things that is incredibly international. It's accessible mm. even if you don't understand the lyrics, especially the more you get away from very lyrical kind of, you know, ballads, yeah, the more yeah. you step away from that and into just noisy music, whether it's punk, whether yeah. it's techno the easier that is to internationalise. And I think looking at how that has spread around the Asian region and looking at the way that it's different. So you go to India, for example, and you look at the music scene there, it's still incredibly Indian sort yeah. of centric. So there's there's a very clear kind of style of Indian music. And you know, there's lots of different genres within it, but it's very clear that it's Indian and that's still very strong. Whereas if you go to other parts of the region, it's very clear that they've absorbed an awful lot of that international influence, but then they've made it their own as mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, you, you go to somewhere like KL and you go out for some music, it's not going to be massively dissimilar to Singapore, mm-hmm. but there's still already that little subtle nuance of difference in how they express it. So I was mentioning earlier, I did a lot of clubbing around the world. Sadly, I don't club as much anymore because I'm an old man, but... Back in the day, when I first moved to Asia, I was clubbing three nights a week. Mm. And, you know, I was lucky I got to travel around the region a lot with work and I was clubbing in all these great cities. It's really interesting to see how people do what is essentially, it's the same record, it's often the same DJ. The clubs are formed in very similar kinds of ways. And yet the way that audiences react to that and the way that they enjoy themselves at a night is very culturally driven. So you end up with this Really. really interesting sort of mishmash of different stuff. So I'm just thinking, like, if you go to, there's a, a club in Tokyo called Womb, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is like still one of the world's best. If you like techno as techno should be for a techno fan, it's mm. one of the sort of religious, <laughs> it's, you know, you've got to go on your pilgrimage to go to Womb. And you still got the world's best DJs, people like Richie Horton still traveling right the way across mm. the world to go and play in these places because you've got audiences that take the music in 
sort of they internalize it and they enjoy it in ways that you don't necessarily get elsewhere because the fans there are you know they're very focused they've been techno fans for 25 years you've got people in their 50s that go to womb every week and it's just like wow you try and do that in london you know you go out to a club in london and you're over 40 you get yeah, you get looked at in a certain way. It's like, what's this? Why don't you? What's this sketchy man doing here? And I think that's really interesting. Is that you look at the nuances of that around different parts of the world, but in particular in in Asia, you start to see those different subcultures mm. that become adopted, right? By different, mm. you know, you find that those fans talk to each other across the world, and it's the really interesting thing about music. So I'm going to take techno again. When you've got a couple of years back, there was a, a thing where all of the DJs would be live streaming their sets from Ibiza, mm-hmm. which was fascinating. So, you know, they're, they're on stage playing in front of 5,000 people at Space, one of the big clubs in Ibiza, and you've got Richie Houghton and you've got all these famous DJs, and you've got GoPros over there, control units, and it's going out to the world, live stream, so you can watch the video, you can listen to it, but they've got a chat thing in there. You've got people in South America, you've got people in Japan, Mm -hmm. you've got people in Australia, all these different places chatting. They've got a mutual love of the music itself, but the way that they then go about enjoying that and expressing their love of it, there's all these little subtle differences Mm -hmm. in what it means for them and how they enjoy it and the way they talk about it. And I think from... An outsider's perspective, there's so much that you recognise, but at the same time, there's so much that you can look at and go, it's like a dream. You're, mm. you're, you're, you know what it means, but you can't quite understand how it's sequenced and how it follows together. Mm. And I think that's one of the bits that, for a lot of people that are experiencing Asia for the first time, there are going to be bits that you recognise, the yeah. bits that you sort of feel at home with, but then the more time you look at it, the more you realise that it's a bit of a carnival mirror effect. Mm. It's like mm. bits are distorted and stretched. So, so what does that mean when we live in a world where there are all these dots joined across Asia, these, these subcultures, which, you know, you have a punk scene, you have a techno scene, and, you know, there's more sort of similarities between people who share these passions, these mm. interests, and within the countries, the, the geographies themselves. And, you know, I mean, you look at, for example, like skateboarding. Mm. There's a huge skateboarding scene in China as yep. well, for example. And any, anywhere across Asia, you'll see these subcultures and they'll dress the same, you know, and they'll act the same way and they'll walk around with their with their pants hanging down, their box of shorts sticking you out. You sound like a granddad already. I am, yeah, yeah. I was one of them at one stage. So, you know, that, that it's just interesting. So people look at that and they think, oh, you know, that there's people losing their culture and, you know, what's going on? I mean, what does that mean for us in terms of what Asia is becoming? And what does it mean for brands and marketers and yeah. so on? Do, are they really losing their culture? I think that's a really important question to be asking ourselves honestly. Has there been misappropriation here? So has somebody come in and forced it upon them? Or yeah. have they looked abroad and thought... I really Is that like, what misappropriation means? I don't know. I'm just using it because it sounds good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's used a lot, isn't it? it is. like, so you've got cultural appropriation, which is one of the hot sort of sensitive areas at the moment yeah. where you know it's usually white folks have taken a yeah, small yeah. indigenous thing and made it their own and not given relevant respect. I'm sort of talking about that more broadly, you've taken a culture Hmm. and you've bastardized it in some way, I suppose. Let's not use it because it's probably distracted from the conversation. But let's take skateboarding in China, for example. Is that an American import? No. It's skateboarding is a thing. It originated in a part of the US, maybe. But if you look at what that means in a cultural context in Beijing, for example, it's going to be different to what it is on the streets of, I don't know, South 
San Francisco, whatever yeah, it may yeah. be, right? And I think you, you sort of you look at the way that people take influences, and this has been going on forever. If you think back to the Silk Road, where you know you had China bringing stuff into Europe, and you mm. look at I don't know if this is true, so I'm going to be very careful how I express this, but there is a story that pasta in Italy came because of the Silk Road yeah, from yeah, Asia, right? Yeah, right. Marco is Polo. It, that is right. true. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it, it's that sort of thing of, is pasta Italian? Absolutely. But was it influenced by China? Very possibly. And I think it's that bit of you take the influences that you love from an external perspective and you make mm. them your own. And that's pretty much what culture is. And if you think about almost every culture in the world, there are elements that came from the outside that you then adapted and made your own. And that's what is mm. really interesting about things like the internet today is that it's so much more accessible. Culture anywhere in the world is now accessible, but that works both ways. So once upon a time, Hollywood, and I think we talked about this recently as well, you know, Hollywood is the most important element of the United States' success as an economy because they have exported culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. became a dream that people around the right. world could understand. And it's yeah. not necessarily that they're related to it, but there was a consistency all around the world. And therefore, even if it was only 1% of each country that related to it, you add that up in each country, that becomes a thing, right? Whereas now with the internet, what's really interesting is that works both ways. So if I really want to learn about a small subset of the punk scene in Beijing as somebody that lives in Singapore, I can do that. Mm. Now, challenges with language are still an issue. I don't speak Mandarin, so I may not know how to search for it. But it's very easy for me to find somebody in a forum that knows that can guide me and introduce me to that. And all of a sudden, if I am... <laughs> if I'm the clash in London yeah. and I want to know what's going on, dead easy. You know, I, I open up my phone and look at some stuff on YouTube and all of a sudden that influence goes back the other way. So I think there is this misperception that it's a very one-way thing from west to east. Mm. And I, I don't think that's true. I think you'll probably find that the vast majority of people in Asia will take something from any culture, whether it's eastern or western or wherever it comes from, and they'll make it their own. And that's the way that culture works. You know, it's the same with language. It's the same with music. It's the same with art, any kind of cultural expression people are going to adapt it to their own needs and put their own lens on it and i think that's the bit don't don't always look at these things and assume that there's a negative to it mm. you know there are situations where things like mass marketing do have a negative influence but a lot of the stuff especially where it's artistic mm. it's not imposed on you know it's very difficult to impose yourself on an artist the whole point is that they're creating something that they're proud of and that is unique to them and it's a little bit patronizing for us to say, oh, you've, you've right, become... Right, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Think... That, that's the real sort of underlying vibe there, isn't it? So to your point about pasta, just as you were talking, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually Googling it, and um, from his book, the 13th century book, Travels of Marco Polo, it did mention the breadfruit tree, which was used to make flour, to make mm. pasta. So you're right, and it, it's what we sort of see as the, you know, the... A very, if you were to name it's something that was Italian, especially food, it's pasta, isn't it? That's probably a pizza. Yep. Even then, pizza probably you know has been bastardized, like you say, from by yeah. America, right? Fuck yeah. So that, that's how, that's sort of how culture works. I, I want to sort of go back to the Clash, if I may, because yeah. you you brought them up again. And as an example, if you were the Clash back in the eighties and you were gigging around the UK mm-hmm. and building up a fan base. That was a big thing. I mean, yeah. that sort of took up most of your time going out and doing the, you know, the Badlands and playing those. And yeah, then maybe you would do Germany and France and so on, and maybe a little bit in Amsterdam. But that would be the extent of it, right? Yeah. And then there would be like the American tour, which would be like the big deal. Massive. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of still that sort of hangover of, you know, like the Shea, the Shea Stadium and the Beatles and, you know, the Sullivan Show and all that sort of stuff. 
you know, you're going to go make it in America. So they would go to America and you either made it or you were a complete flop, right? Mm. That's kind of how it happened with bands, isn't it? And The Clash went to America and it pretty much was a bit of a flop, even though now they, they've got a big yeah. following in the States, right? So that's how it was back then. But like you mentioned, if you were in Singapore, you could connect with a, a punk scene in Beijing. Mm. How does it happen now? I mean, how do... You know, how, how are these cultural or these subcultures spreading? I mean, digitally, you spend your life sort of analyzing what's going on in the world mm. of digital. How are young people finding out about stuff and how is it spreading through Asia and, and beyond? To say social media is such a sort of broad, it doesn't do it justice because there's so many elements to the social media way of finding things. But let's, for argument's sake, let's suppose that this is a music issue. Now, mm -hmm. I can go on to Spotify and I can listen to music around the world, but this did a very clear cultural lens to that. I can go onto YouTube and I can start searching for a different kind of genre of music. So suppose I did do a search for punk and maybe right. if they'd done their homework particularly well and they got their SEO right, I might discover by accident as a kid in downtown Pennsylvania, I don't know, that I discovered this Chinese punk band that it's like, wow, that's blown my mind. You know, right. So if you think back to the days of The Clash, even when I was growing up, the way that you found new music was what was on the radio. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in Scotland, so we had Radio 1, then you had the local radio, and then there was a pirate radio yeah. station, which, of course, everybody <laughs> had, to find, had to find the pirate radio station because that's the way you really found new music. But, you know, that was it. You might, I still remember, I talked to my sister about this the other day. We used to have this thing called teletext. Yeah. So teletext was, sort of, it came through the TV and it was all, it was piggybacked on TV sort of broadcast waves, but it was a bit like the internet before the internet. Yeah. Um, and there was music stuff on there. It was back, this is going to age it have music me. music on it? It did. There was, there was about three pages for the three youth. Three pages. And it was, it was, it was almost like a message board yeah. and people would send in their messages. And back in these days, it was the uh, New Kids on the Block fans. I still remember they were the, the big thing when I first discovered this, that yeah. how old I am now. But I think what's really interesting is that, you know, I could connect then with people all across the UK. And mm. that was a revelation because they were saying, oh, have you heard this new record? If the radio hadn't played it then, then that was a massive sort of surprise to me. But you look at the, the kids now, the records are being produced by a kid in his studio in Jakarta, mm. he's uploaded that to whether it's SoundCloud or whatever else. And a minute later, all around the world, people can find that and then they can be sharing it. And what's really interesting is that you'll find that, you know, that kid publishes it at two o'clock in the afternoon, Jakarta time. By the time a DJ in US wakes up and listens to it and she's like, this is absolutely amazing. I've got to have that in my set tonight. And all of a sudden, all these people around the world. I think that's the discovery but that's so interesting is that you get communities. You've heard of the long tails, oh, one of yeah, those great absolutely. concepts that get mm. talked about in e-commerce a lot, but it's the same in music as well. Mm. If I wanted techno punk with influences of Peter Rabbit in it, I'm pretty sure that there is a community of three or four people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the Peter Rabbit thing came from. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You, know, you can find people. So the, the example that I think it's Seth Godin always talks about is people who like to crochet horses and then they suddenly discovered that this was a massive fucking community and there were hundreds of people that liked to crochet horses. Serious? Like, yeah. What do you mean so crochet? Or knit like, these things? like crochet, the, the cross-stitch stuff that you, yeah, 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 you, know, yeah. you put on front of a cushion and stuff like that. And this was the discovery is that it's this is not a unique weirdness it's mm. just it's very broadly distributed there are a few people but there's lots of them in different places and I think culturally that's what starts to get really interesting is if I want to make remixes of Edith Piaf songs 
in a techno style with Chinese lyrics, mm. I can probably find a few different people around the world, and it's not just in China that want to do that. That's the bit that I find fascinating, is that you're no longer restricted by what the broadcast media tell yeah. you you should be listening to. And I think this is, what, this is why the music industry is struggling so much at the moment, is that their model is finding one or two things that they believe that they can churn out on a mass scale and then promoting that hugely right. through advertising, and you must buy the album, and all of a sudden you've got a kid in Jakarta that's made this track, and I want to listen to it, and I'm not going to pay for it because I've spoken to her, and she made it this afternoon, and she'll just give it to me because yeah, yeah. she's my friend because yeah. we met on social media. And I think that's the bit of cultural influence now is so much more rapid. So mm. we talked about the Silk Road, and that was that, that was quite an interesting sort of influence. But that took weeks, months, years to happen, mm. whereas now we're talking minutes, seconds, mm. sometimes. So how does that that work in the sense that, you know, you mentioned YouTube, which, mm. you know, I think back to my son, who's 12 years old, like pretty much everything he has learned has come from YouTube, right? Yeah. So, you know, there was one day where he was suddenly into Alan Walker. And the reason he was into Alan Walker because Alan Walker was giving away all his music yeah. on YouTube on no copyright sounds. And he got, like, eventually a billion views yeah. on that, and the rest is history, right? So now he wants to be the next Alan Walker or Marshmallow. Right. And they're just giving it away free, all these, <laughs> these DJs. But it's YouTube. So, you know, it exists in the YouTube world, which is global except for... China. So yeah. how, how does that work where you, you know, in China has all those different streaming platforms, it has different video platforms, it doesn't just have one, does it have mm. a, whole, a whole bunch of them? And even the messaging platforms are China specific. I mean, WeChat obviously is outside of China now, but still, mm. you know, 92, 93% of the audience is still in mainland China. Right. So it's and, very and WhatsApp doesn't work in mm. China. And most people you know, most young people don't VPN stuff, right? So allegedly, yeah, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, okay, fine. I know, <laughs> You're not supposed I know, to, but it's well established. But still, they will still use the local well, domestic yeah. platforms. So then you know, you kind of got this, you know, not just a a, a wall, a, a firewall, a great wall of of internet information, but it's also culture, isn't it? Yeah. So how's that working? I mean, how does? I'm just curious at how you know in Beijing they have a punk scene when. Do they have access to the outside world and all, you know what's going on? This, this is the same with art and culture almost anywhere. Though you've got the the very small minority who are the change leaders and the tastemakers who are a lot of the time they're very internationally minded. They'll go out and they'll find inspiration wherever they can find it. So you will find maybe a very small percentage of people who are you know, they live and breathe this all day every day. It's what they care about, and they've got whether it's a VPN, whatever it may be, they've found a way of accessing mm. this because it's, it's their passion. When you're passionate about it, you invest time in researching it, right? They'll go out, they'll find it. That may then, you know, if they're just a curator, they may then share that with all their friends. Mm. You know, they found it, but they'll then put it on WeChat. So they found it on YouTube through their VPN and they then shared it on WeChat and, you know, they get credit for it. And copyright aside, they become famous for being the person that shares that first. There is a massive thing in the digital world of being the first to introduce yeah, it. Yeah. You know, once upon a time, it was quite difficult. Now it's an awful lot easier, but you can still be first. But then you've got you know, you've got the other people who are a bit more creative that take that inspiration and create their own version, whether it's they did a cover of it, whether it inspired them to do their own version of it, you know, or it inspired something new that was based on that. But I think it always comes down to your level of passion. You know, you, you could be a chef and you could be looking at recipes. So yeah. I know a lot of people that, you know, they read recipes avidly as long as it's in a language you can understand or even if you can just see what's being you added. You don't need to understand it. Yeah. Right. You just look at what's going what on. The ingredient. And, you know, you can say, oh, if, if you are... A lot of people think that recipes are like mandates. You must follow X, Y, yeah. and Z. But if you look at the way most really good chefs work, they go, oh, steal that, steal that, put that together, 
mix it up, and now I've got a new idea, and this is this is great. So that's the way that cultural inspiration. There's no such thing as a new idea. You, know, you take two disparate well, sources of inspiration, yeah, yeah. and you create your own version of it, and that is new. That's creative. Creation involves putting two things that have never been put together in that way and doing it for the first time. Mm, you know, mm. it, it, there is no such thing as genuine, true innovation. It's usually mm. an evolution of something. And I think that's the bit that we miss is whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's cooking, anything that is an expression of personality and taste, you're going to find influences in that. Mm. You know, no, nobody is totally isolated. Yeah, no, yeah. It's like if I asked you to imagine a new colour. It's like, yeah. I can't because it's just going to be based on the colours that exist already. Right? Yeah, very good point. And I think... No, no, it's just, I mean, this whole point about how people discover this stuff. And I think back to the, the cavemen days. I know that's not technically the right word, but <laughs> when we were living in caves and society was organized in sort of concentric circles, you would have the people who stayed in the, the cave and looked mm -hmm. after the families, the people who led the tribe. And then there was this outer concentric circle, which still exists in social media. And what we're seeing now is like the foragers. Mm. And the forager's job was to go out to the extreme and go out to the periphery and forage for fruit and nuts yep. and berries and so on. And, um, you know, they were a bit sort of out there. They existed in this sort of world which is away from the cave, so to speak, mm. the society. But they were happy out there yeah. because they were the ones who brought the stuff home, right? Yeah. And they weren't worried about the internal politics or how things were like, you know, how things are working out in the cave they just kind of brought the, the the stuff back and people got fed and that was their reward right yeah and in the same way i guess you know we're looking at that that sort of like dynamic in asia with culture whether it's sport or media entertainment music any kind of fashion is that there are the foragers mm. you know not everybody's a forager but it's no. like five percent of the population and they're, that, yeah. the people who are out there actively seeking stuff yeah. right and they're vpning and tunneling through firewalls and so on so it's interesting to know who these people are yeah and i think you know you, you, let's suppose that they are five percent i don't think the number matters but you're right it's a small tiny percentage you've then got the 95 percent that are dealing with cave politics and whatever yeah. else we're going to keep that analogy going and i think that's what really what is really important is that if you look at i'm going to go back to my techno reference because it's the one i know best if you look at the late 80s early 90s when this stuff became a bit of a movement and I still remember being at school and all my friends making fun of me because they're like, you like tech now? Is that such nonsense? And then by the time I left school, which was in the mid-90s, again, show my age here, it had become a bit more of a thing. You know, in the charts, a lot of the music was yeah. techno-oriented. You listen to music now, pretty much every band, yeah, that's it, yeah. even if they're an indie band. Even like Coldplay, the stuff right. around like techno. Right, right. it's got massive techno-influences yeah. in it. So whether it's the, the rhythm structure, whether it's the, the riff and the hook thing... Mm. If you listen to this, like you know, so the, the more so you take somebody like Dua Lipa, for example, yeah, yeah. not that I'm particularly familiar with her music, but I'm inflicted. I have to listen to it every now and again. It's like you suddenly go, this whole thing, right. it's not techno, but the whole thing is following a techno structure and that kind of stuff. So I think it, you've got the foragers, the ones that who who do go out, and you know, it, it's absolutely true that techno wasn't brand new. It borrowed from disco, it borrowed from hip hop, it borrowed from all this stuff, and it created its own little version of it. You had those then pioneers who created something that people then got excited about and there was a movement to, and that then over the course of 5, 10, 20, now almost 30 years, that became the cultural norm. You know, you're now seeing it in adverts for insurance. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, oh my God, really? But where, where, where would we be? At what sort of point do we have to get to where we see, you know, like 
Chinese techno artists go global. Um, because you know it, it's thoroughly okay for thoroughly. So it's okay for <laughs> sounding like I'm from a different era. It's totally okay for you know a German or a Norwegian or a Swedish artist to go global, and you would never know. You know, you, you it's the, expected, right? It? Exactly yeah. that that exists, right? But where are we with like Asian artists? Because I don't see it, even though there's a big fan base there. Right? Yeah, or prove um, me wrong. No, that's the bit is that they are less likely to go global than somebody in a company a country like germany but having said that on an internal asia right, this, is, yeah. this is the bit that a lot of the asia matter stuff that we talk about we talk about intra trade yeah, intra asia yeah. trade is bigger than the stuff with the rest of the world and i think it's the same culturally as well if you look at something like k-pop there you go <laughs> we well, have to drop it right i'm googling it as we speak but k-pop is massive yeah. korean dramas are massive yeah even in japan right, right? So, huge yeah. and i think what's really interesting let, let's take an example of one where it has transitioned um for those of you who have netflix you may be aware of the show called terrace house Teresa houses which is it's a reality tv show out of japan but oh. it's reality tv done japanese style so they're incredibly like big brother. but it's good <laughs> with no disrespect to Endemol, but I'm sorry, Big Brother fucking pains me. Yeah. Whereas watching Terrace House, much as I absolutely like, cannot deal with the fact that I'm watching reality TV, I cannot. It's it's addictive. <laughs> I have to watch it. Yeah. And there was an article in the BBC recently, you know, BBC terribly Western British. Good afternoon. Talking about thoroughly. why <laughs> thoroughly talking about why Terrace House has become a global phenomenon, even mm. though it's in Japanese with subtitles, and it's a very very culturally specific thing you know you watch it if you don't understand japanese culture the whole thing is alien to you mm. so almost all of terry's house is about this group of 20 somethings that live in a house together and always fall in love with each other but it's massive drama but it's massive drama chinese uh, chinese japanese style sorry mm. and you know, just watching japanese millennials dealing with how to live in a house with somebody that they've fallen in love with but can't express that you know you imagine it in an American situation. Let's be culturally inappropriate and exaggerate for effect. They would, you know, they would express their feelings straight away, and there's a good chance that there would be some kind of physical activity pretty early on. These guys can live in Terrace House for months on end together and not even tell each other that they like each other. And it's that sort of you know, the insights into a cultural phenomenon that is then spreading to the rest of the world. I think the reason why the rest of the world is fascinated with Terrace House is because of the cultural nuance that is very Japanese. Mm. That's the bit I think. Up until now, it's been very difficult for any band that sang in a language other than English to crack America, mm. right? Well, I'm just having a look here. As you say, as you talk through your uh, Terrace House example, Terrace House. Yeah. I'm having a look at K-pop artists. Mm -hmm. So, are you into K-pop? I'm not. Okay, all right. I'm not into K-pop. I'm into Korean drama, but oh, I'm okay. K-pop. All right. So, K-pop artists. Having a look at the a list of k-pop concerts outside asia mm -hmm. so your question was about non-english speaking artists cracking america right so i'm just having a look down the list here and if for example you take a band like astro okay yeah, one of my favorites your favorites <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just having a look at, you know they're lined up just in february this year they did san francisco la washington dc new york city toronto um and then there's a whole list of k-pop artists here as i'm just going through the list who have played outside of asia a lot of them in um the us mm -hmm. um obviously up tension uh, uh, tested your pronunciation yeah, no, 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 exactly. talk a bit embarrassing yourself 
and um, 101 and uh, got seven. I mean, obviously, seven. got, I got seven. These I mean, and yet they are touring the world. I think this is what's really interesting. Well, they, right? did, they did the Verizon Center in Dallas, which is no, no small. It's um, a pretty decent fee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they did the Movie Star Arena in Santiago, Chile. So, I mean, there's some Fuck. pretty big. Like they went out of Chile. Monster X, you know, whoever they are. <laughs> so that sounded massively patronising. Yeah, no, no, they are. So, so your point about um, you know non-English speaking artists cracking America. Well, K-pop has kind of led the way. I don't know if it's something. I mean, Korea is obviously a very export-driven economy, mm. and there is a big commu- community in the US or Koreans um, as well. But I don't think that's right. the only well. That kind of gives it a leg up, doesn't it? So. Yeah, and I think that the, the Korean community has done a really good job of integrating lots of Korean culture. So if you look at the popularity of Korean food across the US, it's massive, and mm. they're very good at sharing their culture with other cultures if you like so they've, they've done a really good job of spreading that story mm. you look at something like Gangnam Style yes it's a massively overused example but it was for the longest time the number one most watched thing on YouTube around the world and it was in Korean you know it's, sure you could get Gangnam Style and you could do the little horse dance right, right. you could play along but right. it was still not in English but I think uh, the bit that's important here is that you've got markets like the US which is still if you're a musician for better or for worse it's still regarded as the gold standard if I crack the US then I've made it you know I am a global superstar mm. and yet the US accounts for what 4% of the global population and how many people around the world have English as their first language Yeah, right and I think it's that bit of you've got so many people that don't speak English as a first language who are used to therefore listening to all music in a language that's not their own so anything mm. that's in English is not in their own language therefore does it make any difference to them if it's in English or in Korean not really it's a foreign language if I like it I'll enjoy it and I think that's the bit that the internet has done so well for us is it gives us access to I can listen to a band from Sweden I can listen to a band from Bolivia mm. and I can have them in my playlist one one after the other if I so choose and then I've got DJs from around the world if I want to go and listen to a night out where they're playing that stuff from those different musicians from around the world so I think that that's the bit that I think is a lot different to what it was even you know, when I was growing up 30 years ago is that there were one or two people that you know you had people like John Peel yeah, massively yeah, famous yeah, yeah. Uh, DJ so if you don't know who John Peel is listener then please Google John Peel was responsible for pretty much shaping the tastes of every British teenager indie for indie music yeah, but you know even techno so he introduced me to drum and bass which is fascinating the guy was in his late 50s by yeah. this time and he's introducing me to stuff that you know was absolutely at the cutting edge of techno and he would then follow that up with a band from Malawi who were doing this amazing sort of you know local Malawian music and he's, yeah. he's just his eclectic taste was incredible but he was, you know, if he didn't like it, he wouldn't play it. And the trouble is, much as I had massive respect for him, he was just one individual. And now the good news is that I can go on to a platform like Mixcloud, and there are DJs all over the world who are playing oh. you know, massively eclectic mixes of music like that. And my biggest challenge now is deciding which one to listen to. So back then I had a choice of one, and I listened to it. Now I've got all these different things. It's like, how do I, how do I decide? Mm. I think that, that's one of the interesting challenges, is how do, how do Asians... How does Asia take its cultural story back out to the world? Because mm. a lot of the time, Asia's been really good at importing stuff, making yeah. it its own, and you know it's great on a local basis, but then taking that product back out to the world, whether it's because people in the West are just massively, I don't know, culturally inappropriate and don't listen to stuff from the East, or whether we're just not very good at promoting it as well, Asians. M- maybe they would, I mean, maybe they would listen to it if it was, they were exposed to enough of it, because it takes a while, doesn't it? Mm. 
Like K-pop, you wouldn't like it the first time you heard it. But <laughs> Are you judging them again? But you know, like if you heard enough of it, you'd get you'd see the familiar faces. That's and, the same with any music, right? Isn't exactly. It? So it takes that, doesn't it? But it doesn't get to that sort of like escape velocity, if you like, to yeah. make it work. It doesn't get that. It's always sort of bubbling under. Never gets enough exposure. Yeah, I suppose there's there's a lot about that, and a lot of. So you were saying that you know the Clash weren't massive in the US when they were active, but yeah. now it's that like. No, you, like, let's take a different aspect here. You look at an artist like Monet, culturally massively important, but financially impoverished in his own yeah. lifetime and not recognised and actually scorned by a lot of the sort of artistic community, yeah, and yet right. now regarded as one of the most important artists of all time. And I think a lot of the time, like you were saying, it takes time for that stuff to trickle through and have the impact on us because if it really is genuinely new... Our brains don't like that. You know, mm. Much much as we need to change as human beings is a necessity biologically, we try and resist it as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's that bit of, I think because a lot of the time there hasn't been the richness of industry to support arts in Asia that there has been in places like the US, that means that it's been more difficult for people to access that content. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, there's the priming, is it? The priming's not there to, yeah, to get people used to this content. And the fact is, that obviously, America punches above its weight culturally. Yeah. You know, like you say, in terms like of population. Not, it's true. Yeah, like in terms of population, it, it has Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has a big impact on it. That cultural hegemony, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just looking here. Like, not, not through lack of culture in Asia. So, you're obviously a DJ. And you're well versed with the, the music scene and the electronic dance music scene. I'm just reading here. DJ Mag, are they of do they carry weight? Yeah, so globally they do amongst a select group, but okay. yes, definitely a global thing. Alright, so I'm not just plucking names out no, here. DJ Mag. DJ the Mag. DJ Mag top hundred in so particular. Two thousand and sixteen, mm-hmm. so uh, the top twenty dance clubs in yep. the world. Yep. Four were located in China. Yep. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise me? No, because this is a uh, a list that is based on votes from people, and it's an absolute numbers vote. So you get a lot of Chinese people, and you know, <laughs> anything in China, you take one percent of anything in China, it's billions of people, right? Obviously, my math is terrible, but you know, what I mean, it's like if Chinese people decide that they want to get their stuff on the map, it's very easy right, to get yeah. a lot of them together to do it. But having said that, Zouk in Singapore consistently one of the best. Um, there are a couple of clubs in Bali that consistently made that top 100 list as well. Um, and then, again, you've got Japanese clubs like Womb and stuff. So I think it's interesting. If you look at the, the venues around the world, a lot of them are in Asia, to mm. perhaps to some people's surprise. But you look at the artists, going back to what you said before. So if you look at the top 100 DJs, it's still very heavily dominated by just a handful of European and you know, mainly European countries. You've got a couple of Americans yeah, in there, but yeah. it's still... Holland, Germany, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much, you know, France and the UK. But it, it's a very small handful of countries, and they're not the only ones making this music, but they're the ones that are cutting through for whatever reason. I think there is a, I suppose, a cultural frustration there. I think there's an awful lot of people around the world that are making much higher quality kinds of artistic output, but they're not as good at marketing it as a lot of people that have grown up in those Mm. places where the industry was more developed and where the recognition was that it's not necessarily about how good it is, it's how good you tell the story about it. So you were talking earlier about, you know, you had to hear that music a certain number of times before you liked it. And I still remember back when I was a, a kid, and I'm sure this is still the case now, you had the song of the summer. 
Yeah. And it was really the best song. No. So I still remember, like, for me, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to put in this into YouTube to find it, listener. But La Bouche, Wanna Be My Lover, it's, oh, it was dreadful. And it was along the lines of Corona, um, Rhythm of the Night, and Wigfield's Saturday Nights. So we're the talking Macarena. Macarena, exactly that genre of music. It, it just happened to oh. be everywhere. It wasn't artistically highbrow, and yet because you kept on hearing it every time you went out to a club and you had those great nights and you were mm. with your mates and you met that girl, and you know, it became that thing. And I think this is slightly different now, is that you don't have the same top-down hierarchy yeah. in media that you used yeah. to do. And I think that Asia's not quite cracked that story of how it goes back and tells the story that of its cultural output to the rest of the world. Mm. There's a massive opportunity there because people outside of Asia don't get to see all the amazing richness that is even take K-pop. It may not be to our tastes, but it's massively popular. I mean, yeah. you, you go out on the streets of Singapore here and you ask the average millennial girl, I'll, I'll, I'll make broad stereotype no, you, cliches. You're right there. But, you know, the average Singaporean 23-year-old girl, she's going to be able to tell you pretty much all of the top K-pop stuff, as well as the J-pop stuff, as well as the, I don't know, you've got Beijing, you've got all these different things. This is this is well-established locally within the intra-Asia story, and yet you go to, I don't know, even if you go somewhere like the Middle East, it's definitely not going to be as sort of recognised. Mm-hmm. You've got London, maybe you've got that community that tells that story, but you've got someone like Edinburgh, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Edinburgh, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be biased against myself. But oh. it's, it, it's just incredibly sheltered. You've still got that very non-global view in an awful lot of the Western world. I was just, I told you, I was just in North America. Like, <laughs> sorry, it's going to sound culturally inappropriate, I'll do it anyway. I was talking to people in Canada, and they were like, do you know where Singapore is? They were like, yes, it's in Asia. I was like, mm-hmm roughly where on the map do you think it might be and just these blank faces are going i roughly know where asia is on the map it's over there that bit. right like i confess i lived in singapore for three weeks before i knew where it was on the map i feel terrible about that now yeah. i was living here i couldn't tell you where it was on the map right. little red dot right so okay um there's a there's a there's a riff here there's a theme that you sort of poked about with so i'm going to kind of bring it out is that you could express it for me yeah there's um so if we go back to that DJ mag mm. list, and I'm just having a look. Whilst you, whilst you were talking, I was just having a flick through who, you know, like the, the emerging artists are, the emerging clubs and so on. Mm. And I thought this was interesting about Chinese underground. Mm. You know, seven Chinese underground electronic acts that you need to know, right? Underground. So, underground. Well, not anymore now. No, right. That's out on our podcast. So here's what's interesting about it. There's a, there's a theme in this. And I suppose this sort of brings us back full circle to where we started is that if you were to go through the artists, and I don't know any of these artists. You may know more than me, but I'm just going to read them Probably out. Not. So apologies for pronunciations. Um, I'm just going to read them out, but they have a, a common theme. April Red. No. Yeah, shaking his head. Um, from Taiwan. Okay. Okay. Really good techno scene in Taiwan, by the way. There you go. So um, Mickey Zhang. Um, now he sort of cut his teeth at Trezor Club in wow. okay, Berlin. So right. this is the thing is, I know Trezor, but that's pretty hardcore, isn't it? It's, industrial. It's amazing. Sonia Calico. Know the name? That's Taipei. As good as it gets. Yeah, again, Taiwan. Uh, Chu Jing. Apologies no. for the pronunciation. Um, started her career. Sorry, is that a he or she? I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> his career. Sorry, Oops. started his career Awkward. in um, uh, Stockholm. Mm. No, Sweet. sorry, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> I got that one wrong, but it was outside of China. Jeremy Chung, um, again, has basically, you know, from Hong Kong, BB mm. Deng, Hong Kong again, I think, yeah, 
Born in Hong Kong, raised in Taipei. Again. Gaviendo, uh, Hong Kong, half Brazilian, born in Brazil, half Japanese. Good mix. There's, there's, an, in- there's an interesting vibe here, right? Which is, um, you know, that it seems like those that are really driving the, the Chinese music underground scene have come from outside to some degree. If you can call Taiwan and Hong Kong outside outside we're mainland. Not, we're not China. allowed to do that. Exactly. Special administrative regions. Yeah, exactly. But you know, culturally they are outside yeah. really in that sense. But there's something there, isn't it? And that that's key to this sort of cultural spread and yes, influence. But I'm gonna then balance that. You look at anywhere in the world, the same is true. The more that you have a diverse cultural reference, the more likely you are to create innovative stuff so there's a a common sort of theme around especially southeast asia this thing called third culture kids where you've got a parent you know each of your parents are from a different country and then you grew up in a third country hence the third culture kid you look at those tck's as they like to call themselves they are disproportionately entrepreneurial disproportionately creative Mm. because they're comfortable with diversity from the outset they're used to bringing diverse things together and just you know, being comfortable with them. Yeah. And I think you look at the people that succeeded the best in the US music scene, they tend not to be <laughs> sort of, you know, from exactly the same cultural background. The most successful Who musician. are you talking about? Or just, I'm, Call trying it. Think, I'm trying to think of good examples. Who, who, who is a success? Well, let's, let's take the, be, the best example. example of the king of pop, Michael Jackson, right? Yeah. Nah, we're going to get into all sorts of horrifyingly awkward cultural stories here if we start talking about you know michael jackson is the epitome of an american cultural icon Mm. and yet he's obviously african-american and you've got a large swathe of america that refuses to accept well he didn't get any airplay before mtv right right and you know they refuse to accept that this person is a representation of american culture as the rest of the world you know if you ask me american cultural icons now sure enough i've got people like him and then i've got my you know my sort of western movie who was that actor uh, John Wayne. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say Jeff Wayne, who's a musician, completely irrelevant. Um, but you know, it, it's it's really interesting when you look at that. So you've got, I suppose, if you well, even Elvis. I mean, Elvis took black music right. and brought it to white people, right. effectively cultural appropriation yeah, of the worst order. But, but he grew up around black people, right. so that's where he got that influence, right? So and I think this is the bit. If you look at the influences that made the most innovative and inspiring artists, whether it's musicians, artists chefs you name it it's the diversity of influence that creates the richest outputs and the richest source of inspiration the obvious and i think that's what's really interesting is the more you are going to be exposed to that the more likely you are to create things of uh, an internationally interesting perspective now you could be very very focused so if i just decided i'm going to create the Bukit Tima version of Alaxa, which is a famous Singaporean dish, and I was only going to do that. It's probably going to appeal to all the people of Bukit Tima, but it's not then going to spread out to Jurong, for example, which no. is another district of Singapore. But if I took Japanese food and mixed it with a little bit of uh, American food, like happens an awful lot in the US where you've got a fusion, mm. all of a sudden it's appealing to lots of different people because they're like, oh, I'm quite interested to see how you've done that. Now, whether it becomes a long-term favourite, it's a different sort of concept so i think looking at those underground folks from china that you were listing out there and saying you know it's interesting that a lot of them are international doesn't surprise me and i don't think that's in any way a bad judgment on the people who are i was going to say pure chinese and that's probably massively inappropriate as well but if you look at 
the fact that these people, so let's take the Brazilian Japanese guy, and you can see that musically that is such yeah, yeah, a yeah. contrast. You know, yeah. what, was, what, were her t- what were his two parents listening to in the house yeah. that he then listened to? And you know, you've got her, I think, yeah. Brazil, oh, her. Hey, I want to find out who this is, and I'm going to listen yeah, to all yeah. of this stuff. But you know, you've got Brazilian jazz, and you've got all this great sort of bossa nova stuff, and then you've got I don't know whatever Japanese might have been Japanese, Inca. might have been Japanese rock. It might have been I don't know. J-pop. Right? You mix <laughs> J-pop, jazz and J-pop is a great combination. Well, exactly, it's, that, it's right? diversity, and you know, it, it's only for the better, really. And I wonder as well. I mean, if we look at Asia and what it means in the the, the global stage for mm. media and music and movies and so on you know does it have that does it have that kind of diversity needed to create this fusion these really exciting ideas like culturally because you know you can go and see a whole bunch of chinese pop Mm. right but will that succeed on the global stage we don't know will will they come out with like really interesting funky ideas which Mm. You know, the world audience will say, oh, that's, that's amazing. Like, these guys in China are doing this. Or does it matter? Because they may just say, screw you lot. Asia to Asia, that's what right. it matters. K-pop, like it's doing all right. And as an artist, you're less, and this is going to be a broad generalisation, and it's inappropriate, but let's do it anyway. As an artist, you're more interested in creating your version of genuinely inspiring creative stuff than you are in cracking the world and making millions of dollars, right? Mm. It's a broad generalisation, yeah. like I said. But if you are producing what you care about and you have an audience of people that appreciate it, if they're just in your hometown, that's okay. If you want to take it to the world, that's a different ambition. And I think that's the bit is how many people want to take that to a global audience. Yeah, do they need to? Well, yeah, it's a personal choice. And I think think that's the interesting thing is, like I said, I don't think that there's any difference in the quality or in the level of inspiration of this cultural stuff. I just don't think that Asian artists up until today have been as good at marketing their stuff, whether that's by choice or whatever else. Mm. They've not taken that stuff to the rest of the world and made it into the success that an awful lot of the drivel that comes out of somewhere like LA unfortunately has become international. Mm. It's like it's very disappointing. The lower brow stuff is everywhere. And it's like, no, there's a, a huge amount of stuff here. But I think, you know, I know that an awful lot of our listeners are going to be much more business listeners. Let's bring this back to a bit more of a business thing. So if I hadn't come to Asia, I would never have built the businesses and done the stuff that I'm doing now because I would never would have had the cultural influences that inspired me to do all of that stuff here. Mm. It was We've talked about travel a lot on our other shows as part of the, the whole ATP world. The exposure that you get to different cultures when you travel, especially in a diverse place like Asia, a region, mm. it, it activates bits of your brain and opens you up to a degree of innovation and creativity that you're never going to get if you stay in your own closed world. So the ability to go out and try new food, much as that sounds ridiculous, it it was one of the bits that opened my mind to new possibilities. I grew up in, I give my family a huge amount of credit for food because they've got great taste, but growing up in Edinburgh, we didn't have a vast amount. We had a Chinese restaurant, we had a couple of Indian restaurants. Deep fried Mars bars. Deep fried Mars bars. Don't knock them until you tried them, culturally. It's one of those things we should take to the world. You know, it was when I got here, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, so much richer yeah. than I could ever... You come to Singapore, a country of five million people that is a tiny little... You know, you can't even see it from space, it's that small. And yet the diversity of food that we've got here is incredible, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And it, it's just... I, I really thought that, because, I mean, like, I lived in Japan, and you spent mm. time in Japan yeah. as well. It's, like, amazing food, but, you know, I think it has the diversity here. Singapore wins, I think, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. But then, having said that, you go to Japan, and you see how they take food stuff that you recognize and deliver yeah. it in a way that you don't recognize and it's that of your brain just being 
taken out of its comfort zone. Pasta. Are you right. Japanese pasta? Pasta. We're back to pasta. But Japanese there you go. curry. Japanese pasta is, oh, I don't know about curry, but Japanese oh. pasta is actually pretty good. Yeah. But they do it pretty well. Apart from the stuff with like the, you know, tarako, the fish eggs and stuff on it. But again, they've taken something which you recognise and they've yeah. delivered it in a new way and your brain goes, what? And you know, you could go, oh, don't like that. Don't trust yeah, yeah, not, not yeah. much in that foreign muck, which is unfortunately an awful lot of the Western mindset of, I would not. <laughs> Talking to some people when I was in the when I was in the Northern American continent and telling them about some of the stuff that we eat, and this is utter horror on their face. Right. Like, you 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 eat innards. Like yeah. you, well, in Scotland we do too. It's called haggis, and you sort of champion yeah, this. Well, as the French have been doing it for. Right. And yet, so, okay, let, let's just so put this deviating. to the test and talk, talk about how diverse it really is out there. Hmm. Let's just pick a. I mean, because you've done so many countries, like when you do your digital lives report and mm. your digital report, you put it out there, you cover pretty much every country on the, the digital and the social media side. So you've got an understanding of how different countries are. So I'm going to ask you to nail your colors to the mast first mm. and just name a country in Asia, any country you would like. For no reason whatsoever, just to pick a country. That I would like. No, I would like any country you would like. Taiwan. Taiwan. Sorry, okay. it's not allowed to be a country, but I'm going to call it a country oh, for the purposes of this conversation. And Is this the place I've not been? Music I've... genre. Well, techno, obviously. Techno. So uh, uh, when you talk about techno in Taiwan, are you talking about it with knowledge about how big the scene is there? Absolutely none whatsoever. Because the first thing that comes up, you Google like Taiwan or techno, it says on... Uh, the web it says why Taiwan is an underrated electronic music hub yeah so can you see that straight away I can believe that absolutely because it is a melting pot of different kinds of culture right. and it's got a very young kind of demographic and they're generally a very creative culture yeah I say they and do you listen to any artists coming out of Taiwan? No, I don't. You but wouldn't even know they're Taiwanese. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the important thing about techno is a lot of the time I hear the stuff because it's in a mix that a DJs play, but I have no idea where they come from. And yeah. to be honest, it doesn't really matter to me. I may discover that they're from a particularly interest. So suppose you told me that this was a track by somebody from Vanuatu or from Cambodia. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting yeah. because there's a story behind it. You know, I love my stories. But if you were to tell me that it was somebody from Taiwan versus somebody from, I don't know, Tennessee, hmm. If the music's great, <laughs> that's one thing. But what I might do is if I realise that there's two different DJs from Taiwan, so I suppose these two different DJs from Taipei, I might go, huh, there's a lot more to this music scene. I want to go and dig into it and find out a bit more. Maybe mm. I'll go and visit, you know, do a weekend of clubbing in Taipei and go to some record stores. Sounds like a good idea. I did that in Tokyo. I went to some very sort of niche record stores. I still mm. like buying physical media. Even though I know I can download it in higher quality, I like the tactile feel of a bit of vinyl. And I love going to record stores because there's a certain kind of person that you meet there. And it was fascinating. I spent a good 45 minutes in, I think it's called Jet Set. So it's, it's in one of the suburbs of Tokyo. It's run by this amazing lady who, she, you just tell her a couple of things you like and she'll introduce you to some local artists. And it was just amazing because this is music that I never would have heard had I not gone and sort of spent time with this lady in this record store in the suburbs of Tokyo. Is it in Tokyo? There's one in Kyoto. Ah, there's, I think there's one in both cities. Oh, okay. 
Go on, you let me steal your thunder. No, it's all good. So yeah, largest vinyl records. There's a, there's a, there's yeah, there's two of them. Two yeah. stores. You're right. And um, largest vinyl in Japan. So if you're a to- if you're a techno fan and you're in Tokyo, go and check out. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> Jet Set Records. You know, it was, and then I also went to Disc Union, which is at the other end of the extreme. It's this massive, massive second-hand record store. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Everything is literally piled up in cardboard boxes. You can't move. You've got two people trying to go down an aisle, and you've, you've got to stop and reverse out and let the person past you. Yeah. And I thought I'd be in there for maybe an hour. <laughs> I love my music. I spent four and a half hours going through just one section. And it was just like, oh, my wife went absolutely spare because I told her I'd meet her. Really so she was waiting for me on the street outside Uniqlo. Um, but yeah, this is what's fascinating is that I, I think I know a lot about the genres that I love. I bought about 40,000 records over my life. I've spent an yeah. obscene 40,000. 40, so I have a house full of vinyl and CDs. Wow. I love music. It's my thing. It's always been my thing. And yet I can go to a, you know, I've got one city, yeah, whether yeah. it's Tokyo, whether it's Jakarta, whatever else, and I can get there and I can discover there is a whole undiscovered world to this because you're never ever going to be able to listen to everything that mm. you like, even in a genre that you love. You're never going to be able to try all the foods that you want, even if you nail it down to... I don't know, the best bolognese sauce in the world. If you go to Bologna and you have bolognese, which doesn't exist, by the way, there's no such thing as bolognese sauce in Bologna, but you want to go and try all these ragu dishes in Bologna, you're never going to do it because there's thousands of restaurants that do the same thing ever so slightly differently. This is the beauty of it. You've got to sort of take all the different influences, make it your own, and then take it back out. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about culture today but that's the same in business you know you want to develop your own take on you know we talk a lot about differentiation in marketing right you don't have to be unique you just have to have a meaningfully different story and that can be my pasta is made by my grandmother in the back of the shop Mm. the pasta may not be any better or worse but there's a story and this is it i come back to this again and again the bit that asia doesn't have developed as perhaps um as sophisticatedly as say America is the marketing of its story yeah. to the rest of the world yeah. because that's just not been the way that well the, the education system doesn't encourage it as well I don't even, that, yeah, I think I mean I went in and tutored I went in and presented to a bunch of students this week and I, you know I think that was quite clear they didn't have that kind of support in mm-hmm. education it just comes naturally to some cultures as well hey listen just uh, you know um, I'm conscious of the time and we've covered Are we all prattling again? No, we're not. We're not <laughs> prattling. We're in, in a good way. And I think what I wanted to ask you, I know you're passionate about music as well, so I want mm. to put you on the spot again because I like putting you on the spot. <laughs> you, you perform well under pressure. Thank you. All right. So in the context of Asia yep. and music, I'm going to ask you three questions mm. and there is no right or wrong answer, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Question number one, of all the countries and genres which one do you think is going to produce the next global star in oh, Asia in music? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Would you think it would be country and western? <laughs> it could be an evolution of country and western. <laughs> country and eastern? <laughs> country and eastern. Let's do it, folks. You heard it here first. Please tell us when you've become a worldwide hip-hop, success. Hip-hop EDM. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of get the feeling that it's been a long time since we had the next genre. So yeah. the last real you know, EDM grew out of house and techno, and that was the early '90s. Uh, we're coming up on 30 years of that now. We need a new thing, you know. I, 
I hate genrefication of music because it mm. boxes stuff and the whole point of music is it's supposed to be creative which doesn't fit in boxes but I kind of feel like there should be something new coming out and there is yeah. a, a lot of cultural heritage in music around this region that is ripe for taking to the rest of the world because even if you go to somewhere like Bali where they've got a very local style of music Gamelan, yeah, it's not necessarily accessible you know, like you said, you've got to hear it a few times before mm -hmm. you start to get your head around it. But the rhythmic structures and the the curiosity of the melodies that go in there, if you if you take the time, it's like, wow, this is so rich. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that's going to be the one that takes over the world next. I don't mm. think it would be. It had a chance. Quite, it's quite yeah. difficult. Um, I'm. Uh, where is it going to come from? I, well, I think country it's, wise, it's, it's going to come out of China. Yeah, it's going to come out of China. It is now. So it's what not it's really like it, though, I don't know. Pop. No, rock. I think it, I think it needs to be slightly different. Hip hop. I think you're going to find it is... EDM. It's not EDM. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. It's, it's going to be dance-oriented, but I don't mean that as right, in right. dance music. I think it's going to be a dance thing because that's going to be the evolution of where we're at now, but it's yeah. going to be a new... Whether it's, you know, what drum and bass was to techno, yeah. I think we're going to see the iteration of that, but Chinese... Gotcha, all right, good. We're going for China, and it's going to be the next genre of music, which mm -hmm. we, we haven't yet discovered. No, but it'll be dance-oriented. All right, coming from China. Excellent. Okay, question number two. Which genre and country in Asia music scene would you like to know more about? If you could spend a weekend, where would you go? And in what clubs or bars or whatever is that where that music's played or temples even would mm. you like to sort of discover more about? Seems we've been talking about it, it's gotta be Taipei. You're up for Taipei? Yeah, I'm totally up for that. So uh, anybody Literally. listening that wants to buy me a ticket yeah. <laughs> I'll do your presentation if you pay my tickets. How about Taipei, dance music. I'm up for a bit of anything. Actually, I'd really like to go and explore a little bit of diversity. I want to see a bit of Taiwanese hip hop. I think that could be really interesting yeah. because they, you know they, they've got a really rich international. Yeah, yeah. I mean, influence. if hip hop's going to happen, it's going to happen there, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's kind of open to. Do you know hip hop in Bangkok is amazing? Really, really, really interesting. I wouldn't say. Right. I, I, I mean, there's a big hip hop scene in Tokyo for mm. stuff, and it still is. You've got your sneakerheads and stuff. So yeah, that, that yeah. whole sort of yeah. culture there is still massive. So jet set. They did techno, but there were other stores yeah. that I went to that were specialised in hip hop. And you know, Japanese hip hop is amazing. It's really rich. It's really powerful, and a lot mm. of it is very sort of. It's my style. It's very jazzy kind of hip hop compared yeah. to the sort of gangster stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I would love to get to know that in a lot more detail. But language is a big barrier to a lot of this, and I think that mm. when I think the biggest opportunity and potentially threat as well to culture is when we've got auto translate into our ears so voice right. control for devices is happening there are already devices that are auto translating that into our ear when we've got the the digital babel fish for the uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy fans but that's coming you know, we're, we're talking less than five years before that's a reality when that happens suddenly so many things become accessible that at the moment are quite intimidating yeah, yeah, whether yeah. it's speaking to the chef of the street stall that's making stuff in a walk well, that you're I starting try. to see it slowly like for example yeah. on grab or you know, i don't know if uber have it, so it, it uber has it it will translate the messages for the taxi driver yeah, which is great now. there you go so now you can see why it's a good thing yeah so, totally alright so, so Taipei. Taiwan yep. Taipei EDM lastly but not leastly um, slightly more difficultly uh, you're making that word here. yeah I know if you were if somebody was to uh, text in or contact us through text the, in you know, did you just say phone that? in yeah phone in on the show <laughs> so so we're, well we're talking about vinyl you see so I'm getting Stamped the program if somebody was to uh, you know write in to us and talk, tell us about a music scene in Asia, what would be the one that surprised you the most, the fact that it existed? 
Where would it be? Uh, what type of genre? I don't think I would be surprised about it, but it would be really interesting to hear about things from places like rural Myanmar. Yeah, so there's a big punk scene in Myanmar. Is there? It's, it's amazing. Have Are you, you serious? Are you yeah, I'm absolutely kid? serious. Like, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of documentaries done about Burmese punks. Really? And they're proper punks. They're like, wow. you've got to, anybody listening, go out and Google Myanmar or Burma and punks. And the images are amazing they're like they're properly in the tartans and the the you know, oxblood doc martin's 22 hole you know with the braces and like mohicans they're not just like you know wimpy green day punks <laughs> wimpy green day this is a hardcore degree punk. of judgment yeah they, they look amazing See, and some of exactly what you were going to say what would surprise you you've surprised me right yeah, there. there you go well you can't have that one you've got to think of another one um myanmar Am I allowed to do Pacific Islands? Because I think it's it's that kind of stuff. Oh, well, it's a cop out. Oh, Pacific Islands, fascinating. I want to go and spend some time in these like, tiny little bits and bits of rock in the middle of the sea. Um, Mongolia. Mongolia. Give me some Mongolian music. What? What? Mongolia. Well, Mongolian music. Yeah. Well, see, what's fascinating? Mongolian as a language in itself is already like just bizarre, and I don't mean that in any way judgmentally. It, it, it's a mishmash of sort of. You've got a bit of Russian in there. You've got a bit right. of Chinese. It's, Mongolian culture in general is fascinating. But I've, I did some work with, so Tiger Beer yeah. has a big thing in Mongolia, oddly. I didn't, I didn't realize that before I worked with them. Um, but I met their Mongolian team, these two lovely ladies that I spent a few days working with um, as part of a project a few years back. And they were telling me about just the whole sort of the going out scene in Ulaanbaatar. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this yeah. is so impressive. You know, so the, they were telling me that they've got fermented milk, yak's milk, that is a, a big thing. And it's like, yeah. it sounds absolutely terrifying. Even as a Scotsman, I'm like, that sounds like a dangerous night out. But just, you know, they were telling me that there was this big, you know, it's funny, when you when you grew up in a country like the UK, you actually have this, I'm going to send you to outer Mongolia because it's sort of this, yeah, the idea yeah. it's the most Ulaanbaatar, remote place yeah. in the world, right? And yet <laughs> you meet people from these countries and you're like, oh, and you have these like developed night scenes and you realise that you're a massively culturally inappropriate, patronising white guy. Well, there is an established Mongolian hip-hop scene. Have you just Googled yeah, that? Yeah, and it's not just... <laughs> it's, it's, knowledgeable. Yeah, it's <laughs> not, here's the thing, right? You know, if you've ever seen those sort of documentaries where they've got those Mongolian nomads who live on the steppes effectively mm. and you know they've got the eagles and stuff like that and they ride the horses and they do that throat singing yeah yeah and you know it's hip hop yeah and it's basically there's a special blend of Mongolian music which is Mongolian hip hop and throat singing there you go cultural diversity if how right cool there, is that I want to check that out how cool is that I don't know if it's any good well, well, we'll find out. I'm sure there's a really good example of it. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, dig it out. I'll put it on my uh, my next music podcast. you got it. It's, yeah. There you go. <laughs> we'll put some links to that in the show. We once, have to. <laughs> once we've found one we like. Cool. There you go. Hopefully that was a surprise. So, that was. Simon, it's been great speaking to you. And we've, we've really dived into the music scene in Asia. And I guess as well, hopefully those that are listening may know more about their local scenes than we do, and they can maybe share so. some of those insights. <laughs> so obviously Taiwan, EDM, Simon wants a ticket. Totally. Get him out there to the club scene. Go and do a weekend of clubbing in Taiwan. Hell yeah. be great. Um, and anybody that knows anything about Mongolian hip-hop and throat singing would love to hear from you. <laughs> how do we find out more about this? Why don't we share some hooks and handles that people can get in touch yeah, so if, if you were on the social medias, you will find me as Eskimon, E-S-K-I-M-O-N. Uh, so just drop me a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it, I'll be there. 
Um, yeah, I'd love to get links to videos on whatever platform they are of music that you think we should That's be checking awesome, out. Man. Yeah, go on, in, increase our cultural diversity, yeah, yeah, send us stuff. We'll give props to anybody that, that sort of sends in that information. And myself, uh, that's obviously Simon Kemp, myself, Graham Brown. You can get hold of me through LinkedIn is the best, Graham D. Brown. But we also have Asia Matters and Asia Matters Institute. We can find us on LinkedIn or you can find us on Asia Tech Podcast at atp.show. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.